This podcast is supported by an educational grant by Bosch Health, made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. When I was starting to use Dupilumab in my patients, I thought that these patients were, were getting more positive results than what I would have expected. When I was seeing patients three, four months after being on treatment, they're ecstatic. They're like, wow, this is really life-changing. That was Dr. Jensen Young. He's our guest on this episode of JCMS Author Interviews podcast. Dr. Young is an assistant professor of dermatology at the University of Toronto, the medical director of the Psoriasis Education and Research Centre at Women's College Hospital, and a consultant dermatologist at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto. I'm your host, Kirk Barber, the editor-in-chief of the journal Cutaneous Medicine and Surgery. And today I'm happy to ask uh, Dr. Young back to our podcast to talk about his article in our September-October 2020 issue. The article looked at the short-term evaluation of the real-world efficacy and safety of dupilumab for the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Well, Jensen, thanks for joining us once again for yet another podcast. I really appreciate you doing this. Thanks for having me again, Kirk. It's uh, always a pleasure to to join you, and uh, it's always a very good experience. Yeah, well, let's have some fun. So, listen, I picked I picked the article "Short Term Evaluation of the Real World Efficacy and Safety of Dupilumab for the Treatment of Moderate to Severe Atopic Dermatitis," and this was, you know, titled a Canadian uh, Multicentric Retrospective Cohort Study. So, big title. Um, a pretty nice piece of work, I thought, uh, looking retrospectively over about, what, 18 months of your patients on dupilumab. So what prompted you to do it, number one? Number two, you were very forward thinking because it looks like your primary efficacy endpoints match the study so we can have some some comparative. So, so take us where you and your authors uh, conceived it, did it, what turned out? <laughs> Thank you for that introduction. Um, I, I think that I've always been interested in studying the safety and the efficacy of any new drug in the in the in the treatment of of the condition that they are proved in. And I, I published quite a number of um, psoriasis studies to examine the safety and efficacy of different biologics in uh, in the real world setting in the JCMS uh, before. And um, dupilumab is the first biologic that's approved in the treatment of atopic dermatitis. And I think that because of my interest uh, previously in the novel treatments in uh, psoriasis, I wanted to really examine the real-world evidence of um, the efficacy and safety of dupilumab. And uh, I wanted to make it um, a Canadian study. Well, you had a tremendous amount of experience to back up your claims. I mean, we're looking at 93 patients, a big number. And from the demographics of your patients, these weren't people with just a little bit of eczema. Yeah, and I I wanted to include my colleagues as well as part of this study. So I included um, two of the main University of Toronto hospital sites to be part of this study. Um namely Sunnybrook and uh, Park at Women's College Hospital. And so these patients are not all of my patients. So I think that makes the study more objective. So I wanted to, to see, uh, I think that when I was first prescribing Dupilumab 
um, I was getting so much positive feedback from my patients. And then when I was looking at the phase three programs with Dupilumab, uh, specifically Solo 1 and Solo 2, and um, the, the results were, were quite decent. But when I was starting to use Dupilumab in my patients, I thought that these patients were, were getting more positive results than what I would have expected from seeing the results from Solo 1 and 2, which I was investigator for one of the two studies. So when you went through and looked and evaluated your data, what did you discover? So this was a retrospective study. So when these patients were being evaluated, um, it wasn't our plan to publish this. So it was how we were assessing these patients as if they were just our real world patients with um, without any idea that we would publish the data. And I think in a way that makes the data slightly more objective too, <laughs> that we didn't. Yeah, we, we weren't, uh, it, it wasn't a prospective study. And um, so so then I was talking to some of my colleagues and I was talking to, to them about the, the our experiences with the dupilumab in in the treatment of atopic dermatitis. And, um, and after listening to them, then I thought, okay, well, it, it would be interesting to gather more information about the real world evidence of, of this and 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 to publish it and when we started to collect the data we really had no expectations and um yeah well i was just gonna say well what you have discovered out of the 18 month retrospective chart review that you did was that that your clinical suspicion that people were actually doing better than the trial data would suggest seems to be borne out. It, it, you had higher success rates. And I was impressed by, by just the fact that you had the forethought, or maybe your group did, to look at IGA 0 and 1 in 16 weeks. So you've got some comparative data there that, that help us better understand it. So tell me, what, what did come out of this as far as your efficacy numbers and that sort of thing? Well, I, I think that, um, so number one is that we received no funding for this study. So we didn't want to have any influence from the pharma company to have any effect on, on, on this publication. I think to us, uh, that that's extremely important. So we had 93 patients included in this study, and uh, we utilized IGA of zero or one as the primary endpoint um, because in... And I think that going back to Solo 1 and 2 with Dupilumab as their phase 3 pivotal trials, they utilize uh, EZ75 as well. But in real-world practice, other than maybe for reimbursement purposes, we rarely use EZ as, as, um, as a measure to, to follow patients. And um, so we decided to use IG of 01 because many of our patients didn't have an easy score um, after baseline for us to consider as follow-up measure for this publication. So then if we were, if we were to use easy 75, then I think we would have excluded a lot of patients already. Oh, but I, sure. think- I, I can't, I, I mean, 
unless for reimbursement or in a trial, I don't think I'm not doing easy 75s in, in my practice mm-hmm. and every person that I put on Dupilumab for sure. So mm-hmm. th- I, I, this is a really clinically relevant piece of work. And uh, so, so take us yeah. through the sort of efficacy we got. So, or, or through the patient demographic, but the thing that jumped out at me in this patient demographic is that you and your colleagues were already treating a lot of these people with systemic therapy. I mean, these these are patients that had not just moderate to severe disease, but were more on the severe disease side mm-hmm. of things. So, the the um, the the um, results should be taken with that in mind too, right? I mean, you had over fifty percent of your group on more than two systemic therapies. We failed more than two systemic therapies. Uh, you know, we wanted to to do this study because um, we truly believe that patients that are included in in phase three randomized control pivotal trials, they are somewhat different than patients that we treat in real world. Uh, one of the examples is that with phase three trials, many of the inclusion and exclusion criteria, they are so prohibitive that many of the patients are excluded from from these trials. But then when we are confronted with these patients in real world practice, we can't say to them that, oh, you you know, you have this this infection and you can't go on this drug. And we have to treat everyone. You know, over over the years, many, many clinical studies have shown that in many phase three programs that patients who have more comorbidities, patients who are sicker, they're excluded from these phase three studies. Um, and I think, which is fine because from these phase three pivotal trials, they want to get very clean data to, to prove how safe and how efficacious these new drugs are. But at the same time, as clinicians, when we are seeing these patients in, in real world, Again, as I said, you can't just tell them that, oh, you have, you know, you have this infection and that because in this, in this, um, in this drugs phase three trials, that this infection was excluded from these trials and we don't know how to treat you, right? We always want to treat everyone and we, we want to, to do our best to, to help every patient regardless of what comorbidity they have. But unfortunately, um, again, as I said, with the stringent inclusion and exclusion criteria that are inherent in phase three programs, we are not able to, we were not able to, to, to gain uh, a lot of information in patients who have a lot of comorbidities and um, who, yeah, who, who are considered to be, um, to, to, to have health issues that are prohibiting them from getting the medication in clinical trials. Yeah, well, to, to that end, uh, uh, read, uh, so of the atopic triad, 26% of your group had allergic rhinitis, 55% of them had asthma, and 17% of these patients had all three components of the triad. So the truly atopic people with 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 associated comorbidities, and the other thing that uh, strikes me is that um, you out of the the ninety three patients that uh, met your criteria, fifty five percent of them reached your primary efficacy endpoint of IGA zero and one. 
um, better than Solo 1 and 2, as I recall. I think that's remarkable. Yeah. So if you remember from Solo 1 and 2, that IGA of 0 or 1 was achieved by anywhere from 36 to 38% of the subjects. And then if you include Chronos and Cafe, which allowed patients to utilize uh, topical steroids along with uh, Dupilumab, um, but even even in those studies, IGA of zero one was achieved by thirty eight to forty percent of subjects in those in those trials. Um, so we were quite pleasantly surprised by 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 the results of uh, of this study. But I do think that there are a number of factors that could have um, contributed to the elevated uh, treatment response as well in our study. Number one is that. Um, because we we didn't have a placebo arm. So for all of the clinicians that we were aware that we are treating patients with uh, with dupilumab uh, plus or minus you know other topical or systemic agents. So uh, I think inherently we were aware that patients were getting an active treatment. So whenever we involve a trial or a study, that doesn't involve a placebo arm, then always the, the treatment response is, is, is it's elevated. So I think that could have contributed to it. And number two, um, in our study, we, we included patients who were receiving topical agents along with the dupilumab if necessary. Um, and, um, and in our study, patients could have received uh, a, a potent topical steroid along with dupilumab, uh, whereas in in Chronos and Cafe patients were only allowed to use low to medium potency topical steroids. So I think that's that's another factor that that could have contributed to to our um, to our results, and um, and then of course um, some of our patients they also receive uh, concomitant systemic therapy along with uh, dupilumab as well. Uh, so in fact, 18 of our 93 subjects, they receive a concomitant therapy, systemic therapy with, um, with dupilumab. And um, yeah, so one, one could argue that because they're, they're getting another concomitant systemic therapy, then of course their response rate um, it's, it's elevated. But their their concomitant systemic therapy would have been what they were on when they entered, quote, your real, when they started on dupilumab. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah, they, there they would were- There no change in it, right? Sta- yeah, they were stable on that on that dose. Uh, except for, I think there's one patient that we needed to use uh, prednisone as, um, as a rescue treatment while they were uh, on dupilumab quite, quite early on in, in the, in, in the treatment arm that um, that we had to, to use uh, prednisone to rescue, um, one, I think, one patient. Yeah. And just, you know, to, to take you past week 16 for a second, do you recall whether these individuals that were on concomitant therapy, do you, do you recall whether the majority of them were able to stop that concomitant systemic therapy on DPMAB or was it your, is it your sense that they were continuing? 
Uh, I think from the 18 patients, most of them, they stop their concomitant therapy prior to 16 weeks. So uh, I think, in fact, uh, there are only six out of 18 patients um, that were still on that concomitant therapy at uh, week 16. Okay. So another success story, another reason to think that the drug is working better than it might look on the RCTs. Well, well, when, and then when you're looking at these uh, 18 patients who who were on concomitant therapy, six of them were actually not uh, considered as responders. So, so despite the fact that they're on dupixins and they're on on another systemic agent, um, so one one third of them they they, they were not considered um, responders. So then, as much as we think that maybe by giving them either like prednisone or methotrexate or cyclosporin, then that would make their likelihood of responding to to Pixin much higher. But um, yeah, so a third, so a third of, of subjects were considered as non-responders at week 16. So I'm really interested in the sort of two things that show up with dupilumab that are bringing people that are raising some concern with folks. And one of them is the head and neck dermatitis story. It's Mm -hmm. evolving over time. Um, I note that in your, in your manuscript, you do discuss it. And, you know, is, is this head and neck dermatitis just really tough atopic eczema to treat and, or, um, you know, I've had to, frankly, I've had to stop a couple people um, because Mm -hmm. I couldn't get their head and neck dermatitis better body was great mm-hmm. but they said i just can't live like this yeah so in our study uh 16 of them they had um they had clear they had their, their clear disease other than face and neck and uh, but the majority of them at baseline they had some uh facial or neck involvement already um so I think that this is an area that that is worth exploring, and we're actually working on another manuscript to 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 look at um, facial and and, and neck um, reaction or dermatitis, as you call it, um, to to dupixin, or it it could be a, as a result of dupixin, or it it could be it, it might not you know, or it might not have been associated with dupixin or for, because for many of these patients, they, they had facial involvement at baseline. So maybe dupixin is not as efficacious in treating the facial area. So it's too early to tell, but uh, I can say that we are working on a, on a, on a, on a paper that we hope that will we'll, we'll get published soon. And, um, and uh, and my, my team has spent a lot of time exploring this area. So um, excellent. Yeah. So um, another podcast because it is a critical <laughs> issue um, for this medication right now. And the other critical issue, of course, is the eye and all of the issues that occur around the eye. And um, again, your numbers are about what we would expect to see in or saw from the trial work, not as high as we've um, heard from other constituencies that uh, maybe are defining it a little bit closer. 
Um, mm -hmm. So, so what do you think? Um, what's your what's your sense? What do you tell people? I, I think that um, you know we, we're dermatologists and we're not very good at making the making the exact diagnosis of what's you know what what the reaction is with um, with a with a patient's eyes or or eyelids and then once the phase three pivotal trials are published and that we are aware that conjunctivitis it's one of the signals of this drug then we're just more sensitive to it then whenever something that happens with uh, within the eyes or the eyelids then we will consider that as conjunctivitis because oh that you know that was published already in in the pivotal mm -hmm. trials and um I think that we we need to have an expert um, to have, you know, ideally to have an ophthalmologist to make the appropriate diagnosis to so understand what, what is issue. happening. I'm so sorry. Maybe a code, maybe a coding issue in the mm -hmm. trial world, and certainly when we do these real world, I'm with you. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not an ophthalmologist, and I'm you know I can look at eyelid skin and say dermatitis and I can look at conjunctivitis and say conjunctivitis, but mm -hmm. there's so much more to that than, uh, than, than, than my rudimentary skills. So yeah, I, I use ophthalmologists a lot. Yeah. You know, and uh, Kirk, as you know, that you've, you've done a lot of um, clinical trials that, and whenever we do a phase one, two or three or, or four clinical trial, that when we are assessing a patient and uh, they have symptoms that they're reporting to you, then it's up to the investigator to record what that diagnosis is. And so then whatever that's recorded is uh, reported as such. So it, so it depends on the investigator, right? So it, uh, even though we might not be, I, I think that I, I can see that as um, the same as uh, IL-17 inhibitors for psoriasis. That if someone has some, if a patient has some GI symptoms, and that as an investigator, then we, if we record the diagnosis, even without any inv in any investigation, without um, well, you know, without having a process to really uh, confirm that diagnosis, um, then once we are once we record that diagnosis, then it is uh, reported as such. So then this linked to that, to that trial. Yeah. And I think this is no different that, you know, in solo one, two chronos cafe, that it depends on, you know, the, the investigator that whenever we, we assess a patient with eye symptoms, and if we record that as conjunctivitis, then you, you, you can't change that. So whether it's validated or not, and whether it's confirmed by by and by an, an expert so yeah yeah so, i know uh, it's it, it's difficult and i have trouble sort of understanding why i mean we've had the drug for three years now anyways the americans had it before we had it and it's 20 percent of all the people that take the drug have some mm -hmm. problem you think we would have sorted it out by now um and but but we haven't and Nobody's sort of gone in and said, okay, if we look at all the people with eye problems, this is, you know, what it is. And here's how you identify these sort of things. So, so maybe this podcast will spur someone to have a look at all that. Somebody from the ophthalmological world. 
mm-hmm. to, have a, to have a look at this and give us some guidance. Um, yeah, I, I would say that. Yeah, so in in um, in in this study, that I yeah, I don't think that any of the subjects they uh, discontinue the, the the treatment because of uh, of conjunctivitis or related symptoms, and so these are you know so the, the, these are symptoms that are maybe consider as um, well that they're considered as mild to moderate at most and they're not considered as a serious adverse event. So people that if they get great success with the drug, they're willing to trade off mild yeah. eye issues for not having this horrible itch um, all day, every day. I, I, I understand. And, and, and so, and we're lubricating and topical calcineur inhibitors on the lids and, and, uh, and maybe there's just no other treatment to offer people. Right. I mean, um, I, I don't know. Yeah, so, but- Ophthalmologists are are, uh, are are useful to us. So so tell me something. You know, you've had your ninety three patients here. You've had undoubtedly many more subsequent to, to the publication here. Is there anything from your work with these ninety three that influenced your practice, or is it just enhanced it, and you're just more confident going forward? Um, I think that we actually published the 52-week data in a, in a, in another journal, and I think that um, the retention rate is is quite high in patients who had good results within the first 16 weeks. That is, that they so, uh, so very few subjects they discontinue the treatment between week 16 to let's say week 52. And of course we are still in the process of, of uh, gathering more, more data in, you know, two years or three years. So that's uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get more publications um, um, from, from this cohort. Um, but I would say that overall patients, they're, they're very happy with um, they're, they're very happy with their treatment and, um, and, as I said to you earlier, that so one of the so one of the reasons why I wanted to publish this was um, was that when I first look at the, the data from solo one two and so solo one and two so with uh, the IGA zero um, or one uh, percentage between thirty six to thirty eight percent at week sixteen and easy seventy five about fifty percent. And I think we're very spoiled from the data that, that we have from psoriasis. And of course, they're very different diseases and we can't really compare the two. But then when you're looking at EC75 and you can't help but but compare it to, to past EC75, right? <laughs> I, you know, Kirk, you're, you're very experienced with the psoriasis too. And you look at and you're very critical and you, you look at very you look at many um many trial results and and a lot of data and uh then you know you think easy 75 or 50 percent you're just like okay well it, it's good but it, it could be better and then i guess when you start prescribing it then you i i had this preconceived notion that okay well patients they're you know they 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 they, they, they would get better but um, but then, but then when I was seeing patients, like at three four months after 
being on treatment, meaning real world patients, they're ecstatic. They're like, wow, this is really life changing. Like it, it, I'm not itchy anymore and I'm not scratching as much and I can have a social life again. And it's quite remarkable. And I, I think that's one of the main reasons why I wanted to publish this study. And, you know, I, I actually, I didn't know, I, I thought that was just my experience. So, which is why I wanted to include my colleagues, patients as well, so that it's less biased. And uh, I wanted to see what my my colleagues' experiences were too. And then, which is why I wanted to include it, um, why, why I included such a big cohort as well. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you've outlined the, the joy of clinical practice, right? And, and, <laughs> and you're documenting that experience. And I'm thrilled to hear that if you hit a home run at week 16, that's, that's likely to be sustained out at least 52 weeks. And, and not only <clears throat> that that occurs, but that you've been able to document that and then go back to the other people and say, listen, you did really well. You're going to do well. This is not going to leave you. And the other, but and the other question I have for you: Did you get a sense past week sixteen? Again, I'm leaving the manuscript. That if you kept people on that didn't, maybe they got mild, maybe they didn't get quite to zero one. Did you get a sense that the longer they were on drug, the better they did? I think that um, I think that I would say after in in my own experience after six months I, I think six months i think it's a time to really assess the patient's peak of response and that um if if let's say if if they're an easy 75 at that point it's i would say it's uncommon for them to continue to improve to move beyond easy 75 um but of course in canada we are very fortunate that we could dose optimize these patients we could dose optimize them to 300 milligrams every week um and i've done that to a number of patients who needed to have that dose optimization and uh, and and that has helped uh, those patients uh, significantly and you might wonder um as you know as as impartial as as one could be looking at solo one and two that you know one of one of the arms was 300 milligrams every week. And of course the other arm was uh, 300 milligrams every two weeks. And there's really no difference, um, no meaningful difference between the two arms. And, and then you might wonder, okay, why would that be beneficial to patients? Um, but one thing that we don't um, always think about is that, so when, when we are looking at those two arms, those patients, they're, they're completely different. So we're not looking at the same population. And um, so by looking at the data there, it does not tell you that patients who didn't respond well to 300 milligrams every two weeks, and if you were to increase them to 300 milligrams every week, that they wouldn't have a better response. Because when you're looking at those two arms, they represent different patients. And even though there's no difference between those um, two arms, but again, <laughs> they don't represent the same population. And um, so it, it is something that we are very fortunate that 
in Canada, and we we've done it for many biologics that, um, and even you know in trials that did not demonstrate that by giving patients a higher dose, that um, that in the pivotal trials that they 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 achieve a better response, but in real world practice that we uh, we've done that you know time and time over again that by giving patients uh, a higher dose or by giving them an increased frequency of their drug that um, that they would achieve a better response. But so the the decision point for you is six months, twenty four weeks. So I, I don't well, mean to, you know, I mean, just I, as a sense. I would say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. as a sense. So you tell people at week 16, if, you, if you've if you got that zero one, you're likely to keep it. If you haven't gotten yeah. it yet, there's a there's still a not unreasonable chance to continue. Yeah. I mean, it's not that you got nothing. You got significant improvement. It mm. just, you can, you, you may see even, even more improvement and, We'll talk about this at week uh, twenty-four again. Yeah, no, and I think that one thing that's that's uh, hidden in in what we just said is that um, it's very unlikely for patients to lose that response. So, you know, in in psoriasis, secondary non responders are quite common. Um, you know, especially with the older biologics. But I haven't, uh, I haven't uh, today. Like, I, I haven't seen. A secondary non-responder to dipilomat. Um, yeah, that, that's fascinating observation. I, I, I've never, I've not thought of it, and I'm, I haven't either. If if it works, yeah. it works. If it, it doesn't work, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, and in fact, yeah. I, I think that you know, using dipilomat is it's a little bit different than than using biologics for psoriasis. I'm, I'm sorry, I always bring back uh, you know psoriasis, but. You know that, but that's for dermatologists. That's the area that we have the most experience with with biologics, and um, and then you know in psoriasis, we always uh, tell patients that as a chronic disease, and you should not stop your, your biologic. Um, but I think that in atopic dermatitis, I think to to some patients, it, it is um, it is slightly different that I have I have actually advise a number of patients to to stop to pillow for you know for for a number of months and uh, so some of some of the patients they would only experience atopic dermatitis atopic dermatitis a few months a year and that um so they would just go on on to map for for those months and then they would stop for a number of months and then they would go back on to it and uh, i i've had a number of patients in that category. It's not the majority of patients, but some patients they they they're you know they, they belong to that category. Um, and and then for some patients that after four months of dupilumab, they're completely clear and and they really wanted to to stop their treatment and see what would happen. And um, and I would say you know, most of the patients they would flare within a few months after they stop. But I've had a number of patients that I'm still following them that after a year or two years that they're still in remission, which is uh, which, right? which is very yeah. different than 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 in the pathogenesis of, of psoriasis. Well, to go back to 
your psoriasis analogy. It's only after we start treating and we get the drugs that we go back and we actually learn what we were doing. <laughs> and and oftentimes the clinician and those observations you've made, the clinician is king. I, I think in this world, the cl- our clinical experience means mm-hmm. so much and directs so much of of the activity and the research activity. So um, thank you again. I mean, your clinical observations are very meaningful. I, th- I think along the same line that um, it's uh, some sometimes patients they want to feel like that they don't need to go on drug for for their lifetime and that they want to to feel like okay well especially for i think that with atopic dermatitis the 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 onset of diseases is earlier than it is for psoriasis and that you know many of our our patients uh with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis they are somewhat younger than patients that we see with psoriasis. And of course, when they're, when they're going on a systemic agent, then they don't, you know, of course they don't, they don't want to, to go on something for life. You know, when they start something, let's say in their early twenties and they are, they, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've encountered patients like that too. Oh, I'm only, you know, my early twenties and I'm taking this drug. Like I have to go on it indefinitely. <laughs> For, for life, then I think that it's a it, it's a deterrent for them that they they think you know, I don't want to start a drug that when I'm so young when when they have when they're otherwise quite healthy and um, and so then for some of these patients that I, I'll tell them that uh, I think the natural history of atopic dermatitis is quite unpredictable and I do think that some patients they do go on. Uh, temporary remission and how long that remission is, is it's unknown. And, and yeah, so I, I, sometimes I, when I counsel patients, I tell them that, you know, it, it doesn't mean that you, you need to go on this drug for life and it depends on your response to it. And at some point, if you're completely clear, then we can try to, to stop the medication and, 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 and we'll see what happens. I, and I think by, by, by o- over the years, having counseled quite a number of atopic dermatitis patients, I think that by by saying that to patients, I, I, I think that makes them more willing to go on a, on a systemic, um, knowing that they might not need it for life continuously um, to, to give them some hope, I think. Hope, that's what we as clinicians <laughs> offer people, right? I mean, and... And this journey is something you and I are joining these people on. I mean, they've been doing it their entire life. And, mm-hmm. you know, and now we're just stepping in and saying, okay, let's try this together and let's see what happens. And they're, they're used to being disappointed, this particular group of people with medicines. And, and um, this drug and the drugs that are, that are coming forward um, will be a big help. And again, Clinicians are fashioning the future, if you will, setting up the next research trials, the the stopping the drug, uh, the recapture of this drug. They all mm-hmm. trials that are going to be done because, as you pointed out, these people need to know. Yeah, and I, I think, and I think that um, 
you know, we are physicians and we think that, oh, just, you know, you're just getting an injection. But for patients and, and especially for patients who are younger, then it, it has, you know, it, it, to, to them, it means a lot for them to start in an in, in injectable. So I, I think that sometimes we don't really think about their position. And, and I, I think that by tell it that by somehow by reassuring them that maybe they wouldn't need to take this injection every two weeks for the rest uh, for the rest of their life then they would be more willing to to start the treatment um than if you were to tell them that oh you know once you start you cannot stop and i i think um i think somehow we have to uh, you know, I think patient psychology is, is, is it, it, it's, uh, it's, I think it's fascinating. And I think that it's uh, something that we can do to, to put them at ease a little bit for them to initiate a new treatment that, um, you know, that, that I think that it, it could be quite frightening to most. Um, and, um, you know, whatever we do, we can do to comfort them to, to start the first step. And then, you know, hopefully it'll get easier from, from then. Well, you've helped us. You've helped us become better listeners by the yeah. fact that you've started recording this stuff so that we can, so that we actually have some objective, if you will, real world data to discuss with these folks. And if I've learned anything over my years of practice, it's uh, I've become a better listener. And it's through work that you have done that has helped me to do that. So thank you very much. Okay. Thank you so much again, Kirk. Um, It's always a pleasure. And uh, yeah, thanks again. I very much hope you enjoyed your time with us. I not only enjoyed Dr. Young's look at his own manuscript, but also the clinical insights that he was able to provide us from his experience with patients with atopic dermatitis. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And I would really appreciate if you'd share this with your colleagues and on social media. And I understand that you can now hear our latest episodes by asking your smart speaker to play the JCMS Author Interviews podcast. I'm Kirk Barber. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, be good to each other.